0: Well, we're back in 2 Samuel. If you'd turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. In some ways, for Americans at least, this is a rather odd passage. And yet, from the Reformation on, this has been beloved a passage by Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, uh, Continental Reform people. And uh, we'll see why in a moment. Again David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord, on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of God come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told, King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. When David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through the a window and saw king david leaping and whirling before the lord and she despised him in her heart so they brought the ark of the lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that david had erected for it and david offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the lord and when david had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings he blessed the people in the name of the lord of hosts then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to every one a loaf of bread and a piece of meat and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, every one to his house. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray for your blessing upon your word. May it do its work in our hearts. Uh, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've decided to preach on the whole chapter rather than just the first eleven verses, uh, like it says in your your outlines, and. Uh, because I forgot to bring the bulletin inserts this morning uh, like uh, Moses did in Deuteronomy 27 where he painted the responsive readings on these huge boulders. Uh, we're going to try to have the stuff up on the, the overheads. But this is a passage that has been used for hundreds of years uh, to demonstrate the regulative principle of worship. And you might wonder why, because uh, this is not in the tabernacle and uh, uh, so why would it even relate to worship at all? But the whole event revolved around the Ark of the Covenant, which was the throne of God. And the author assumes you already have read 1 Samuel. You understand the context, and so it's going to be something that is going to help you interpret this passage. But in case uh, you don't remember 1 Samuel, I'm going to give a little bit of a review. In 1 Samuel 5... The Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, and the glory of God departed from Israel. Israel became Ichabod, was the word that was used. Now, when the Philistines brought uh, the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, uh, God destroyed the idol Dagon. He will have no competitors uh, before him, and he. Also, plagued the Philistines with tumors because the Philistines were trying to worship him too. They worshiped all kinds of gods and they figured, hey, one more God, why not have him in our temple as well? And uh, there was such a plague there that they sent it to the next uh, uh, state of Israel and they sent it on and everybody was getting plagued. And they, we need to get rid of this, this Ark of the Covenant. So they put the Ark onto a brand new cart. Uh, with cows that had just recently given birth uh, to uh, little calves. And ordinarily, those cows would turn around to be nourished by their calves, but miraculously... Without knowing which way to go, these cows went without any hesitation, despite the fact the calves were crying for mama and the mamas were crying for the calves, they went all the way into Israel and brought the ark back into the people of God. Now the Israelites really rejoiced over this, at least for a while they rejoiced, but uh, they got kind of curious as to what was inside this ark. And when they peeked inside, God's fire came out and destroyed 50,070 Israelites. You think this judgment against uh, uh, Uzzah was a bad judgment. Think of that. 50, over 50,000 Israelites were destroyed simply for peeking into the ark. But You see, God says those who come near him, those who approach him, must do so on his terms. They cannot do so on uh, earlier terms. In fact, in an earlier age, God had killed two sons of Aaron for making a tiny adjustment to the way that God had prescribed his worship. They had taken fire from elsewhere rather than from the ark, which symbolized uh, the, the sacrifice of Christ. And it seemed like such a tiny adjustment. I mean, what's the big deal? And when Aaron got angry at God, God said through Moses, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. In other words, you don't come near God on your own terms. That's the regulative principle of worship. Now, back to our story. After 50,000 Israelites were killed for peeking inside the ark, they wanted to get rid of the ark. And that's the natural response of our human hearts apart from grace. Uh, It takes the indwelling Holy Spirit to make us love God's holiness, want to be holy like God, desire to worship Him, have a hunger for worship. It takes God's Spirit to do that. Apart from His Spirit working in our hearts, our hearts produce idols. They are naturally attracted uh, to counterfeit worship. And so the people of that town, they didn't want the ark around anymore. They told the leaders of the next town over, Kirjath Jerim, Hey, guys, uh, guess what? We found the Ark of the Covenant. How would you guys like to have it? They're trying to pawn this Ark off on somebody else because it was dangerous. They didn't want to even be near it anymore. God seemed a little bit too dangerous. So the leaders of Kirjath-Jerim came. They brought the Ark to their city. They placed it in the household of Abinadab. Now, Abinadab was a holy man, and God unbelievably blessed the household of Abinadab, Uh, For a long, long time, for decades, people came there to worship the Lord and to offer sacrifices. And I guess the point is that God's people sacrificed and they were worshiped wherever the Ark of the Covenant was. If If the synagogues were the outposts of worship, the Ark of the Covenant was at the heart of worship. And uh, yet both places, synagogue or the, the massive assemblies of God's people, followed the regulative principle of worship. So verse 5 of our text speaks of this worship being before the Lord. And again in verse 14, before the Lord. And again in verse 21, the worship is described as being before the Lord. This was not simply a parade or a civic demonstration. It was a public act of worshiping the Lord. Now, Michael Bouchel in his book on the Regulative Principle of Worship, says, No other example of Scripture shows more clearly uh, than this the folly of ignoring God's own instructions as to how He is to be approached. Seen from a limited point of view, us intentions were certainly good, but will worship, even when offered with the best of intentions, is still sacrilege. When the ark was later brought to Jerusalem, David was exceedingly careful to see that it was moved, quote, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord, First Chronicles fifteen five. David's charge to the Levites on that occasion ought to be burned on the hearts of all who seek to worship the Lord in an acceptable and fitting manner, quote, because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance, and that's the end of the, the quote from his book. Well, we call that the regulative principle of worship because God's law regulates everything that goes on in worship. Now, that's exactly the opposite of the Lutheran uh, view of worship. If you read uh, Luther and Melanchthon and the others, they said, so long as God doesn't forbid it, we can do anything that we want in worship. The regulative principle says No. You can only do what God's Word authorizes uh, within worship. And here's how Deuteronomy 12 words it. In contrast to worshiping according to man's wisdom, which is the previous context, God says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. That, in a nutshell, is the regulative principle of worship. You can only worship God the way he commands you to worship. Uh, You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. Now, God himself can make changes to the word. He has, in fact, even prophesied in the the Pentateuch that he was going to remove all of the ceremonial law uh, once the Messiah came. But we can't add, we can't take away from it, only God uh, can do that. And so this is really one of actually many passages in the Bible that were used by Baptists, Congregationalists, uh, many different Reformed groups, Presbyterians, to teach on the regulative principle of worship. And this morning I really do hope that this passage stirs up a yearning within you to have more God-centered worship for us to really enter in and uh, to uh, touch the heart of God. Now let's start with verse 1 of 2 Samuel 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. So there is a gathering to the ark. If you look down at verse 5, it adds that all the house of Israel played music before the Lord. So it's not just a gathering of the leaders. It was a gathering of all of the people. Now keep your fingers here. And I want you to turn with me to First Chronicles chapter 13, and actually you're going to keep your fingers or some kind of a bookmark in both places, because we're going to be flipping back and forth uh, between these two chapters. First uh, Chronicles 13 indicates that even though all the leaders uh, were coming, uh, they initiated it, but all of the people of Israel uh, gathered for worship. And let's begin reading at verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader, and David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, if it is the if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and Levites who were in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us and let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. And it's really sad when you think about it. Worship before the throne of God had been abandoned uh, for the most part. There were some who came there, but not as a nation as a whole. Uh, Continuing to read, uh, verse 4, Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shehor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed." This is not private worship. This is not even worship of a presbytery of leaders. It's not a civic parade. This was a public worship service of all God's people. And the regulative principle of worship applies especially to the public worship services. Uh, And um, yet, unfortunately, it's in the public worship services of uh, America that all of the innovations and the experimentation and new forms and methods of worship have been going on And it's gotten so bad in some uh, towns that uh, people have just left public worship altogether. They've just worshipped in their own homes. They've been really frustrated. Well, that's not an option either. Hebrews 10.25 admonishes us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and that's despite the problems that were clearly present in the Hebrew congregations, and despite the problems that were present in Corinth. Exodus and Leviticus says there were public worship services where everybody gathered together at the festival days, and there were public worship services in the synagogues, but the regulative principle applied to both. And there is something that happens in public worship that is very unusual and should be longed for. It is the gathering of God's people before the throne of God every bit as much today as they gathered before the throne of God on that day. In Hebrews 12, God promises special access to the heavenlies as we gather publicly in worship. And though Hebrews says we can approach that throne of grace boldly through Christ, it it, it must be done reverently. Here's how Hebrews 12 words this coming before God in public worship, and this is from the ESV, uh, which gives a little bit more literal rendition. Let us offer to God acceptable worship, so that's the regulative principle of worship. It's got to be acceptable to God. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and, and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see the connection? Some people think, oh, it's just back in the days of David, back in the days of Moses, that God was a consuming fire. Now he's all love and grace. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He continues to be a consuming fire. In fact, in First Corinthians 11, it says many people had died, many were sick, some were already weak, in a weak condition precisely because our God is a consuming fire. And um, we must learn how to approach Him acceptably in public worship. Now back to Second Samuel 6, the second thing that we notice was the place of the ark already seen that wherever the ark was, the people gathered for worship. And David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem as a testimony of God's kingship. His throne would be in Jerusalem as a testimony of his kingship over all of Israel. Verse 2, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalah, judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord, or Yahweh of hosts, Who dwells between the cherubim? Okay, so there were two cherubs, cherubim is plural, on the Ark of the Covenant, and it says that God, Jehovah God, dwells between the cherubim. So when you have the Ark of the Covenant in the center of worship, that means you have God in the center of worship. All biblical worship is God-centered, and this is yet another reason why we need the regulative principle of worship. It's because we're worshiping God, right? So we ought to ask Him what He desires in worship. Now, this may be a silly illustration, but if you wanted to put on a special dinner for your wife, and you wanted to really please her, make this her special day, you would try to do things that... She likes right if she didn't like candlelight dinners because she wanted to really see what was in the food uh, you're not going to make a candlelight dinner if she hates broccoli you're not going to serve broccoli no matter how much you love it even if it's your favorite food and it really doesn't count if you say well i gave her one of her favorite foods pickles if a dozen of the foods are things she doesn't like but they're your favorite foods people think that's a very self-centered thing this is not her special meal this is all about you right You're at the center of this meal. Well, in the same way, God is the one who is being worshiped, and it makes sense that we would ask God how he wants to be worshiped, and he has given his desires in great detail uh, in the Word. And yet you will still find people say, you know, that is so restrictive. That's so legalistic. Uh, Why can't we worship in ways that make us feel good? Who's at the center of that statement? It's us, right? It's not God. It's not His throne. There is um, others who are a little bit different. They're sacrificial. They really want to reach out and be evangelistic, and so they develop seeker-sensitive worship services where everything in the worship is tailored to uh, the unbeliever who is coming in. Now, we welcome unbelievers. They should be in our midst, but this is not for them, it's for God. I talked to one PCA pastor at one time, actually sat in on a training session that he gave for how you construct worship services, and they said that every minute of that worship services uh, was crafted uh, to be seeker-sensitive, and so they, he said, we remove anything that would be confusing anything that would be offensive. He said, we take out repentance, we take out the blood, we take out communion because that's an exclusionary thing. We want everything to be able to attract people. And when he was criticized for it, he said, well, it's not like we don't do those things. We do those things, we teach those things, but we do it in midweek. But we take it out of the Sunday morning uh, worship service. But who's at the center of that worship service? It's not God. They're crafting it to make the unbeliever the center of the worship service. There are churches, will not allow your children to sit with you past a certain point. In fact, they will ask you to leave. I'm not kidding. They ask you to leave if you have your kids with you and you want to continue on in the service. And the reason for that is they find the children to be distracting. Uh, they want this to be something that will be more appealing to the majority of people. And each of those sc- scenarios, it is man and man's desires that regulate worship, not God and God's desires. And Colossians, we read that earlier, calls that will worship, at least in the King James Version. New King James calls it uh, uh, self- self-imposed religion. Here are some other translations of that, self-imposed worship self-ordered worship, self-regulated worship. Now, I prefer the term will worship or, as some translate it, worship that springs from man's will. Uh, that's the literal translation. And what this is talking about is talking about man's desires, man's will crafting the content, the order, everything else about the worship service uh, instead of the regulative principle of worship where God's will as revealed in the scripture, does that. So the heart of RPW, and that's what I'm going to call regulated principle of worship, just for short, RPW, okay? The heart of that is uh, that it must be God-centered. And God is jealous for how he is worshiped. Almost all commentators agree that there were at least four innovations that David had made in this chapter. Uh, Verse 7 mentions the error of Uzzah touching the ark, but let me uh, read to you from uh, First Chronicles chapter 15, uh, just uh, five verses, beginning at verse 11. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. He said to them, "'You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren,' "...that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not consult Him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel, and the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord." Now the judgment of God fell on them because they violated four laws related to Old Testament worship. And let me list them for you. First of all, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 31, and Numbers 4 all made it very clear that only the Levites could carry the ark. Okay? In fact, uh, it's mentioned here in, in 2 Chronicles 15, uh, um, verse 2, 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2, so then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. So back when the ceremonial law was around, that was one of the laws that God had given to them. And the second time around, David said, Hey, we recognize what the problem was. We recognize our error. He corrected that. And he realized God wanted officers that he had appointed to carry the ark and to lead in other aspects of worship. The lay people could not do what God had committed specifically to uh, officers. And so when David allowed others to help them carry the ark, it was a direct violation of God's law. And just by way of application, when PCA and other churches have women serving communion or children reading Scripture, they are violating RPW. Verse 15 uh, shows uh, the correction of the second error. Chapter 15, verse 15. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now, where was that in the law? Exodus 25, Numbers 4 both specified that the ark had to be created with, with rings on it so that nobody would touch the ark. Instead, they could put these long poles through those rings and then carry the ark without ever getting near uh, to that ark. That was the whole purpose of that. And you might think, you know, what's the big deal? What difference does it make whether it's carried on a a brand-new ox cart or whether it's carried the old-fashioned way uh, on poles? Uh, You know, for crying out loud, why do we have to be so persnickety about things in worship? In fact, I think they got the idea of putting it on a brand new cart because that was the way the Philistines had sent the ark into Israel, wasn't it? They didn't know better. They sent the ark in there and, hey, it was a big miracle. These cows miraculously went right where they were supposed to go and they said, hey, if it was okay back then, why can't it be okay right now? Well, who says it was okay? Because the Philistines did it. But they might have thought, this is an even better way. This is a fancier way of honoring the Lord by putting it on a brand new cart instead of, you know, that old-fashioned way of carrying it on those poles. But David realized God calls all innovations to be reformed, to go back uh, to the way that God had authorized uh, in His Word. And it's no wonder to me that God's blessing is not on the American church when we consider how so much of modern worship comes from the wisdom of man and not from the wisdom of God. David realized, hey, if God wants it on poles, we're going to put it on poles. Now, that's not to say we have poles or have an ark. We don't. That's part of the ceremonial law. But the point is, the laws that continue to remain that God has given, we need to follow them exactly the way God has called us to do. The third innovation was that Numbers 4 makes it very clear that the ark was to be completely covered so that nobody could see it, nobody would be able to touch it. It was to protect God's people. But in both Second Samuel 6 and First Chronicles 13, the ark was not covered, and so Uzzah was able to touch it directly, and he was killed uh, by the Lord. Now, since only Uzzah was judged by God, it appears he may have led in the innovations, but we don't know that for sure. The fourth innovation was that Numbers 4 warned the Israelites four times to never, ever touch the ark on any pretext, on any account. And if you look at First Chronicles 13, you will see that Uzzah violated that law as well. Uh, verses 9 and 10. When they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Can God ever get angry with believers? Steve Brown says, no way, absolutely not. That's utterly inconsistent with God's grace. And yet here was a man that God had blessed for decades. It was a believer that God got angry at. And if you look in the Pentateuch, you'll see God got angry at Moses. And he continues to get angry at people who willfully defy him, who willfully uh, disobey uh, his word. <clears throat> And it doesn't matter how sincere we might be, this seemed so sincere and so innocent. I mean, Uzzah was doing what he needed to do to keep that ark from falling over. I mean, who wants the ark smashed into a thousand pieces? You know, he's doing a good thing. But it doesn't matter that he was sincere. If he had been following God's directions all along on who should carry it, how it should be carried, how it should be covered, etc., this would not have happened in the first place. And so God's fiery judgment flared out against him. And God has given one example in each period of redemptive history to show that He really means business. This is this is important. Uh, you have under Moses uh, the two sons of Aaron who were killed. Then you've got Uzzah who was killed, and in the New Testament you've got Ananias and Sapphira who was killed. It's just to show, hey, I'm the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And just because I'm patient most of the time does not mean it's not important. It is important, and uh, God treats will worship seriously in every age. He calls us to reform our worship, and I know this sounds legalistic to the American church, but the more you meditate upon God's holiness and his hatred for sin, the more you realize we can't judge God. I mean, David gets angry at God in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 for making a big deal about these tiny details. He got angry. But after seeing the incredible blessings that came upon the household of Obed-Edom, he decided it was he himself, not God, who needed to adjust uh, his attitudes. Our God continues to be a consuming fire, according to Hebrews, but we can approach the throne boldly if we will do so as those who are united to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, that's grace, and if we will do so in the way that he dictates in his law. That's law, Okay. Grace and law. And the Ark of the Covenant illustrates you cannot separate grace and law. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? It was the original Ten Commandments. Those two tablets were placed into the Ark, so there's the law, and he sprinkled the Ark with blood. There's grace. Don't ever think grace annuls the law of God. No, grace enables us to keep the law with joy, to find liberty in the law. James calls it the perfect law of liberty. Okay, and joy is the fourth area of reform that needs to be present in worship. God is not glorified when we make worship as joyless and drab and boring as we can possibly make it, right? He's not glorified at all, and unfortunately, many people who claim to hold to RPW have robbed the services of joy, and there are two points that relate to this joy, and the first one is point four, musical instruments, Verse 5 says, Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cistrums, and on cymbals. Now, interestingly, there are RPW people who say that the use of musical instruments in 2 Samuel 6 and in 1 Chronicles 13 was condemned by God. In fact, I've got scores of books in my library that claim God actually hated the musical instruments in the Old Testament. The only reason He put up with them was that they were so childish, and we're leaving childishness behind in the New Covenant. It's a slander against God when you consider the Psalms, especially. But um, uh, according to them, Second Samuel six, First Chronicles thirteen, First Chronicles fifteen, and Amos five verse six all condemn the use of David's unauthorized music. Their argument is that, quote, all Israel played music here, but in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 16, uh, it says, the Levites were appointed to be the singers accompanied by instruments of music. Now, if you look at the grammar uh, all by itself, you'll see the Levites were singing and were accompanied by instruments. That implies there were non-Levites who were playing instruments. But if you take that argument to its logical conclusion, nobody can sing, right? Because the Levites were appointed to sing. And, and you look in the context, and it, it's just not uh, right. But anyway, their claim is that only Levites may play instruments because this was part of the ceremonial law. And with the death of Jesus, all ceremonial law, including the musical instruments, have been abolished. Now, if you've been told this, I want you to turn with me a couple books forward. Second Chronicles 29. And verse twenty five, and this is a this is a passage that uh, has been overlooked. I mean they overlook and ignore the fact David was not a Levite, and he played with God's authorization. But anyway, take a look at this, second Chronicles twenty nine, verse twenty-five. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And uh, some who are aware of this verse will say, Well, see, there you go. It's the Levites who are playing on the instruments. It's Levitical. It's ceremonial. It's only for them. It's only for the temple. But they're missing six very salient facts. First of all, when David actually reformed worship according to God's word in 1 Chronicles 15... All Israel is still playing. David is still playing. And he says, I will continue to play instruments uh, before uh, the Lord. Uh, We used to have shakers that uh, the kids could occasionally play during music, and I wouldn't be at all opposed to returning to that from time to time. But Psalm 68 authorizes women to play instruments in both the tabernacle and in the synagogues. And in my book uh, that I'm writing, I amplify on that. But anyway, it's just simply not true. It is absolutely false that only Levites played instruments. Secondly, this passage overturns the arguments of those who say that new instruments authorized by David uh, were unauthorized by God. That's the claim of some. And it says, no, this was by the commandment of God. Third, another problem with this theory is that musical instruments predated the ceremonial law, and are nowhere in the Bible said to be a part of the ceremonial law. Fourth problem I have with this theory is that none of the parallel passages condemn Israel at all for for playing on instruments. You just don't see it in the text anywhere. There's no condemnation of Israel, and as I mentioned already, they were already playing uh, on instruments, uh, the same instruments that they played on uh, under Uzzah. The fifth problem I have with this theory Okay, I've already mentioned that David was not a Levite. But in the Psalms, there are calls for the Gentiles to play on instruments. If it was purely Levitical, you could not have the Gentiles playing on them. And then finally, Ephesians 5.19 repeats the command to use musical instruments in worship. Here's a literal translation of Ephesians 5.19 speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and playing an instrument from your heart to the Lord. Now, there is people in the books who will say that doesn't mean instruments. We know it did in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it no longer means that. It means just to sing psalms. So you're singing and singing psalms. Uh, It doesn't make any sense is singing and playing instrument. If you examine every time that word occurs in secular and religious Greek, 200 years before Christ through 200 years after Christ, it always has that meaning of playing an instrument. And actually the word psalms itself means a song accompanied by musical instruments. You've got two references to instruments in Ephesians 5 and verse 19. And there are many other reasons that could be given on why playing on instruments is a continuing command in the New Testament. By the way, the the phrase all kinds of instruments opens up new ones like pianos. Uh, It's all kinds of instruments. David was adding some new. Why? Because the Pentateuch allowed for new instruments to be introduced. So far from us being the ones who are violating the regulative principle of worship, they're violating it by mandating a cappella singing, something that's nowhere mandated in the, in the Scriptures, so that's legalism, and by taking away the commands to use instruments. So they've got both legalism and antinomianism going on, and that always goes together. Jesus illustrated that with the Pharisees. The moment you start taking away from God's law, you're going to start adding to God's law. The moment you start adding to God's law, you're going to start taking away from God's law. Those two go together. We've got to be sold out the Scripture and Scripture alone. Now, they could point the finger right back at us and say, hey, you guys are not consistent. If you're going to take the references to instruments, not just in this passage, but in several other passages, you're going to have to accept dancing as well. (laughs) Now, their uh, their argument is nobody's going to go along with dancing. So... If we tie the two together, they're going to throw out instruments, okay? That, that's not the way I'm going this morning, okay? I'm going to say, I don't care how uncomfortable it is, we've got to be scriptural on this. Take a look at verse 14 of 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. Then Dan- David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, it's the same context of worship, his dancing before the Lord, and he engaged in it with all his might. He put heart and soul in it. In fact, he put heart, soul, and body uh, into it. And we Presbyterians don't often think about the use of our body in worship. We treat facial expressions, for example, or slouching as immaterial. It really doesn't matter when you're coming uh, before the Lord. And so I want to think a bit about the outward expressions of joy that the Bible either commands or gives permission to use. Those who oppose instruments frequently do so by saying, we must worship, Jesus said, in spirit and truth. Agreed. And then claiming that anything physical is not spiritual. I disagree. I disagree. For them, musical instruments are by definition not spiritual because they are physical, and therefore musical instruments are carnal. And you'll see that all throughout the literature uh, that the uh, you know, New Testament has thrown out those weak and beggarly and carnal things uh, like instruments. But to illustrate the error of this thinking, let me just first of all point out that in the 1700s, many churches took this viewpoint to its logical extent and said that anything audible had to be removed from the worship service Because our worship has to be in our spirits alone. It took uh, Benjamin Keach's extensive writing to the Baptists in in the 1700s to convince them that singing out loud was spiritual. They refused to have any singing, any instruments, because it has to be in our heart. It It has to be spiritual. And so he wrote extensively to show singing was spiritual. Many of them took Ephesians 5.19 as a proof, playing instruments and singing must be done in the heart or from the heart. Well, there you go. It's got to be playing on the strings of your heart, okay? It's got to be singing within your heart. And uh, he proved them wrong. The Quakers said, hey, we need to go beyond that. We can't even have preaching in service because that's outward. The, The New Testament calls for spiritual worship, so they just sat silently with their eyes closed in the, in the worship assembly waiting for God's Spirit to work upon their spirit, okay? They were taking this false idea that uh, spiritual is in opposition to physical or outward, because even vocal cords are physical, right? They were taking it to which logical uh, conclusion. But what does Scripture command us to do? Psalm 33, 3 says, sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a joyful shout. Psalm 47, 1, oh, clap your hands, all you peoples, shout to God with the voice of triumph. Psalm 98, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. So he wants us to break out of our shell and shout, and at least some of the singing. Now, is there singing that is mournful, that is repentant, that's very subdued? Yes, there is. In every one of our services, uh, we have that. This service maybe had more of it than some of our services do, but we have that. But there was also a place for exuberance and clapping. Now, some people get very nervous when members, you know, say loudly, amen, you know. We we can't say that, you know. Well, yes, we can. Uh, we're not just commanded in the Scripture to say amen silently within our spirits right no it's got to come out of our vocal cords first corinthians 14 says say amen okay even though it's our body we've got to say it vibration of vocal cords wow they're getting really liberal here what about our hands why does Psalm 28, Psalm 63, and 119 and other psalms say that we are to lift up our hands when we are praying, especially if we're leading in prayer, but any of us can do it when we are praying and praising God, either in song or in prayer. Why is it that Psalm one hundred and thirty-four 2 says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord? Is that something ceremonial that's passed away with the New Testament? That's what the churches that Benjamin Keach was writing against said, they thought it was all ceremonial. We don't do that anymore. Well, they didn't read the New Testament very carefully. First Timothy 2, 8 says, "'I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without doubt or wrath.'" Okay? There's no change here. Paul is commanding us to do something with our bodies, not just our spirits, with our bodies. And for those who say, hey, your body is not spiritual, I'm sorry. There is a difference between spiritual and physical. I would have them turn to Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans 12 doesn't just call upon us to offer up our spirits in worship as if we're Greek dualists who disdain the body. No, Paul said that the very offering up of our bodies is a spiritual act of worship. Let me read it to you from the ESV which uh, renders the verse just a little bit more literally. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. There is the RPW term. Got to be acceptable to God, right? And he says it is. So we're to offer, uh, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And the word worship is latreia. That's the word we get liturgy from. It's public worship that he's talking about. So he is saying, we're supposed to offer up our bodies in public worship. There's something related to our bodies. In other words, we aren't Greek Gnostics who think that the body is irrelevant. The Gnostics hated their bodies so much, they said, our bodies are not even going to get raised. There will be no resurrection. And all of the church creeds denied that. They fought against the Gnostics. But here was the Gnostic interpretation of 1 Corinthians 15. You know, they proof text and ignore all the other texts. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about our resurrection bodies being spiritual bodies. There you go. Spiritual. They won't be bodies. Well, that's not an interpretation. That's a denial of one of the two terms, Spiritual bodies do not deny the bodiness of our bodies any more than spiritual bodies denies the spiritualness of those bodies. And so the early church fought against these Gnostics and said, no, we're going to have literal bodies, but they're bodies that are going to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Let me just use an analogy that at least one of you can relate to. A steam engine is not an intangible, ethereal engine that's made up of steam that you can kind of put your hands through and it's like an illusion. No, a steam engine is a very tangible, concrete, physical engine that is powered by steam. And spiritual bodies are not bodies made up of spirit. That would be a denial that they're even a body. Spiritual bodies are bodies that are 100% controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 is that in heaven the final goal of grace is going to be achieved where our spiritual bodies will be totally controlled by, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But he indicates even now we need to be moving toward that goal by offering up the various members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness, that's Romans 6.13, And Romans 12 says that our bodies must be very active in spiritual worship. So there's no dichotomy here. So we're not Gnostics, but some people in our regulative principle of worship camp, and they're friends, they act as if they are Gnostics. And if not Gnostics, their only good reason for not making their bodies servants to their spirits is avoiding looking like someone else. For example, I have books in my library that say that kneeling in worship is a violation of the regulated principle of worship thinking what where did you get that they don't appeal to scripture what they appeal to is well the roman catholics kneel in worship and i'm thinking so what the roman catholics sit and they stand in worship are we supposed to avoid standing and sitting in worship because they do it i mean we wouldn't even be able to worship we couldn't sit stand or kneel right now, the fact of the matter is the Bible commands us to kneel. Psalm 95.6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And you find kneeling in the New Testament as well. It doesn't have to only be the, when the whole church kneels. You've probably noticed that there are people here that feel so overwhelmed, maybe in a song, that they kneel during that song. That's an okay uh, thing. Bowing down and kneeling is making our body appropriately mirror our spirit's humility when we confess our sins or when we are in awe of God's holiness. And if he's commanded in Scripture, it can hardly be sin. And yet our PW advocates sometimes treat it as sin. Okay, the same books that I have in my library say we shouldn't raise our hands because the charismatics do it. Now, ironically, their worship is being regulated by what charismatics do and thus it is man-centered worship. It is will worship. Now, they write against will worship, and yet they're ironically engaged in will worship themselves. That is not the regulative principle of worship. Later in this chapter, David didn't care what Michal thought of him. In verse 16, it says, she despised him for being undignified when he danced. At least that was her opinion. It wasn't dignified. But David persisted in God's form of worship because he was offering up his body to the Lord. Avoiding Michal's bad judgment was not the center of his worship. Take a look at verses 20 through 23 of 2 Samuel 6. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today. You know, he's uncovered. Is there a picture of how he was dancing there? You couldn't get the picture up there, huh? Oh boy, you guys failed me. (coughs) See if you can get the picture up there. See if you can do it. You can turn off the overhead for a bit. Uh, Cool picture. But anyway, um, yeah, what was I talking about? Um, Yeah, she she was, uh, because he took off his royal robe, you know, kings need to be in their thousand dollar suits. You know, you can't be, and, 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 and God's word was saying, no, he, he wanted to be one with everyone else. He was dressed up, though it was a fancy togs, but it wasn't uh, his kingly togs. But anyway, she thought that was just beneath him. So David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of his death. A lot of these issues really revolve around shame of what other people will think of us. But if we really believe in the regulative principle of worship, we will allow our bodies to be involved in worship as well as our spirits. Now, to give balance, let me say, some people go in the opposite extreme, and they become man-centered by judging people who aren't lifting their hands and by judging people who aren't dancing with them. David is the only one mentioned as dancing here. And I can guarantee you, those guys who were carrying that heavy ark were not dancing. (laughs) I can guarantee you, they were not dancing there. And so on this issue, we can go to one of two man-centered extremes. We can be a Mikal who judges a David for seeming to be inappropriate, or we can be a dancer who judges others for not being spiritual because they're not willing to dance, Right? So let me give you a principle that will help all of us to find balance and will enable us to give liberty to each other on the issues that Scripture gives liberty. And in case you're wondering, issues we've just gone through, there is liberty the Scripture gives. Okay, here's the principle. Can you find the command in the Pentateuch? You might say, what kind of a principle is that? You know, This is an important principle. Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2 says, we may not add anything to the law of God. Now, the end of the Bible says we may not add any scriptures. And the cults many times say, oh, that's just saying the same thing that Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 is. You can't add scriptures there, but yet we added scriptures. No, no, no. Two totally different principles. Last chapter of Revelation says we may never add another scripture to the Bible. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 says you may never add another moral precept to the Bible. The Pentateuch is a complete compendium of ethics. Everything we need in New Testament worship, you can find uh, in the the Pentateuch. And all of the other commandments in the Bible are given as clarifications, amplifications, reiterations of the moral principles in the Pentateuch. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, the Old Testament is sufficient to thoroughly equip the man of God for every good work. That includes any good works in the worship. Every good work you can find in the Old Testament, by the way, the Old Testament prophesies the doing away of ceremonial law, so that's not new, and uh, people say, well, what about the the new commandment that Jesus has given to us? Uh, It was new in one sense, but not new in another sense. Uh, Let me read to you. John says, a new commandment I give to you that you, I mean, yeah, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. The command to love one another was in the Pentateuch. As I have loved you, that's the newness of it. For the first time in human history, we had a person who perfectly loved, perfectly kept the commandments, and so now we can say, yes, it is possible. Here is a perfect model that we can imitate. And so second John says there's a sense in which it's a new commandment, but then he goes on to say, Not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Um, let me give you another one. Luke in Acts twenty six says that Paul was teaching no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. That's why he challenged the Bereans. Check everything I say, everything I say, check against the Old Testament. They did and they discovered that what Paul was saying uh, was true. And so, with that as a background, that the Old Testament, and especially the Pentateuch, has everything that we need in it, I would say that if any aspect of worship is illustrated in the first five books of the Old Testament rather than being commanded, then such kinds of worship are encouraged for all, but not mandated for all. Does that make sense? It's encouraged for all, not mandated for all. So instruments in worship was encouraged for all in the Pentateuch, but not ever commanded for all. And so you can still have a public worship service, you know, if there's no instrumentalists there. uh, No problem. You can sing a cappella, and it's still a genuine worship service that will be pleasing to the Lord. But if there are instrumentalists, the Bible encourages us, use those instrumentalists. So the command is to the body as a whole. It's not to every individual. Likewise, the Pentateuch illustrates the raising of hands, but does not command them uh, for all. So Paul says he desires men to raise their hands in prayer. He doesn't mandate it. But all are commanded to sing. All are commanded to say amen at the conclusion of a benediction, a prayer, or a blessing. So there's a difference between all being commanded to do something in worship and all giving permission to do something in worship. So the question comes does the scripture merely permit dancing or does it command dancing? Well, I would say that since the Pentateuch only illustrates dancing in worship, Ephesians 15, verse 20, but doesn't command it, the later commands in Psalm 149, let them praise his name with the dance, are commands to let it happen. It's a permission. Let it happen. If Joel wants to dance, let him dance. That's what the word <laughs> let means, right? Just make sure you don't knock anybody over when you're dancing, you know? You might have to go in the back, you know, where there's a little bit more, more room. So it's a permission a type of a thing. Uh, <clears throat> and so basically what we're saying in the sermon this morning is let's be consistent. And if you don't feel like dancing, don't dance. You want your body to be conforming to where your spirit is at. You know, God's spirit may be causing you to be flat on your face and not dancing, or it may be causing you to have streams of tears coming down your your cheeks. That's our body connecting with our spirit when we are overcome with joy like um, Mr. Hobart was. So anyway, it's saying you have permission to dance. And there are going to be some of you, I doubt, will probably ever dance. You'll be more like Julie, and you'll use your vocal cords and say, Amen, you know, and uh, that's an okay thing to do. But if we see all laws bound up in the Pentateuch, it helps us to have the balance that you see, that you used to see, that you saw in the picture. Some were dancing in the picture, some were not. And as to the claim that dancing was part of the ceremonial law and was done away with it, I say, well, prove it. If it's part of the ceremonial law, yeah, we'll get rid of it. I have not seen a shred of evidence in all of the books, and I'm I'm writing a book on this subject, so I've just been reading tons and tons of books in this area, but I've never seen any proof whatsoever. And what seems odd to me is that all of these books that are opposed to instruments and kneeling and raising hands and dancing use this passage to teach us that we may not add to God's law and we may not take away from God's law, and then they do exactly what they say they're not going to do, and they don't even let David be a model. And uh, so they are engaged in both legalism and antinomianism. Okay, let's go to the next point, 6. If you turn to First Chronicles 13 once again, you will see David shocked at God's judgment of Uzzah. He doesn't like it. God took all of the wind out of his sails, took all of the joy out of his worship. You could say in a sense that David considers God to be a killjoy here. So take a look at it. First Chronicles 13, 11 through 14. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God to me? So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. David became angry. Yes, verse 12 speaks of fear in there too, but verse 11 says he became angry. He had no stomach for God's legalistic you know, attitudes in worship. Oh, wait a minute, we can't accuse God of uh, legalism, can we? He's the definition of law and freedom both. But I think all of us have experienced David's gut reaction from time to time. We find things in his word that are what God wants, are so out of touch with what we want that we kind of back away from the Lord. And whether David realized it or not, by withdrawing from the Ark of the Covenant, he was withdrawing from God's throne, and he was withdrawing from God's kingship. He was in effect saying, maybe he didn't realize it, that I, I, I'm not going to submit to God's kingship over worship. If I can't worship God the way I want to worship God, I'm not going to worship. And it was only after he learned to value God's lordship over worship that God started pouring out his blessings in his life. At the very heart of the regulative principle of worship is submission to God's kingship over worship. So here's the question. Are you willing to have the ark at the center of worship? Are you willing to submit to his kingship? Hebrews calls us in public worship to come boldly to the throne of grace. That's a reference to the ark of the covenant in heaven that the earthly one was patterned after. And uh, so we can come boldly, and David could come boldly. He did not need to be afraid. The ark was a throne of grace to all who came to it humbly. And it was not until David humbly submitted to worshiping God in God's way that his full joy was restored, and he approached that throne boldly. And First Chronicles 15 shows incredible joy of David, incredible joy of God's people. It was once again a public worship service where God's presence was sensed as they served communion in verses 18 through 19 of 2 Samuel 6. But First Chronicles 13, verse 3, describes the absence of God's special presence prior to that. Okay? In the same way, the book of Revelation tells the church in Laodicea that Jesus was not even present in their worship services. They might have thought their worship was wonderful. Sure ministers to us. Sure makes us feel good. And he said, no, I'm ready to vomit you out of my mouth. And then in verse 17, he says, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me. And then he goes on to list things that they already thought they had, but they were not getting it from God. They were not getting it from God's throne or from His grace. It was man's wisdom, man's finances, man's healing, man's counseling. It was a man-centered worship, and Jesus was not there. And so Jesus Left the church. And I find it so encouraging, though, that Jesus at least knocked on the church door and offered a restoration of his presence. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. So Jesus was outside the door of the church. He wasn't even inside, he was outside knocking on the church door. And he said anyone who was focused on Jesus, heard his voice, opened the door to Jesus, would find Jesus coming in and finding Jesus partaking of the sacrament with him. Okay, Like David, that anyone who had ears to hear in that church in Revelation was worshiping with an audience of one. He didn't care what other people thought. He was worshiping with the audience of one. And because his focus was not on what others thought, Christ promised to reenter the church and to eat and to drink with him in the Lord's table. Submission to Christ's kingship brings restored joy, fulfillment, and fellowship. And that's point seven. The presence of the ark brings blessing. Second Samuel 6, verses 11 through 13. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed obed and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of obed to the city of David with gladness. Too many people think God's law robs us of joy. It's the exact opposite. First John says the only way to have your cup of joy so full it overflows is if you abandon lawlessness and if you walk in the light. God's design is to bless us, and Obed-Edom and his entire household were so blessed by being constantly in the presence of God's throne that David envied him. He wanted to have that blessing, and it was one he realized, hey, it's not God's intent to sour us and make us miserable. It's God's intent to bless us that David's attitudes changed. He went from being angry and uninterested in approaching God's throne to approaching it with gladness. And I think it helps us in our worship to realize God's purpose in the gospel is good news. He loves to bless. We emphasize the bad news, you know, the judgment that comes in the table. There's tons of scriptures that talk of the blessings that flow into your lives through the Lord's table. And what I want to end with is a brief description of the Ark of the Covenant itself because it's such a lovely picture of Jesus. It was made of acacia wood, and the wood symbolized the humanity of Jesus. It was overlaid with pure gold, and the gold symbolized the deity of Jesus. And the only way we can approach God is through Jesus. It was sprinkled with blood. Again, it's only through Christ's death that we have access to God. That's one thing you can learn from the death of Uzzah. God's holiness brings death to sinners, and yet Jesus died as our substitute uh, so that we might live and have joy in His presence. And so, in effect, the ark was a picture of Jesus. When we are Jesus-centered, we're automatically going to be God-centered. Now, it was called the mercy seat because through Jesus, we constantly get mercy because we're constantly violating God's laws, don't we? And so, his general attitude to his people is not to kill every one of us like he killed Uzzah. We'd all be dead. I'd be dead, but I think we'd all be dead. No, he's so merciful. He's called a throne of grace because it represented God's rule through Christ over all the earth. And that God's kingdom is the kingdom of grace that will transform all things by his grace. Now, what was in the ark is symbolic as well. I've already mentioned the Ten Commandments there. It reminds us that we're approaching a holy God. It reminds us of Christ's kingship. He rules by his law. And if we don't value his law, we are not valuing his kingship. That's the bottom line. You can't receive Jesus as Savior without also receiving Him as King and Lord of your life. The second thing in there actually was attached to the outside of the ark was a complete copy of the Scriptures as the scriptural canon grows. So He's not just King, He's a prophet who speaks all God's words to us. He is the Word. He was the one who gave us the scriptures and he wants us to value all of the scriptures. That's why he says in Matthew 4 verse 5, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Next thing in the ark was Aaron's rod that blossomed. Now this represents God's delegation of leadership responsibility to officers within the church. How did that rod get there? It was because Korah and all of his followers said all of God's people can be priests and so... You are taking it upon yourself, Aaron, to only be doing the sacrificing and the incense and, and, and leading and worship. We're going to do it. And God settled it, and actually he, he destroyed Korah. But he's saying, when you, when you fail to value God's officers, it's a reflection on your, uh, your treatment of God's authority uh, itself. And so Aaron's rod uh, blossoming... Uh, was um, an indication that uh, part of the regulative principle of worship is that God puts officers to lead in certain aspects of worship. The last thing in the ark was the pot of manna, representing the kind of close fellowship and nourishment that God would give to His people. And the book of Revelation promises us this, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now that means in the new covenant we have closer fellowship with God possible than David had, than the high priest had. They couldn't eat of the hidden manna. Now, ultimately, because the ark is representing Jesus, it shows the fellowship, perfect fellowship that Jesus had with the Father. But in the New Covenant, we've been called into the fellowship of the Son. He's going to give us of that hidden manna. So we've got incredible privileges. Coming before the throne of grace involves receiving all that was symbolized by that ark. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Our hearts need reforming if any aspects of God's throne are not embraced and welcomed. And of course, Jesus provides what he commands. If we will drink of him, we can experience worship and joy in God's presence that others would never have even dreamed of. And so let's adjust our hearts to God's throne rather than asking God to adjust his attitudes to us. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that it would take root in our heart, that it would grow and that it would prosper in our lives, that we would be drawn uh, week by week to be able to worship uh, better than we have been able to worship in the week before. Uh, Teach us, Father, just as the disciples said, uh, teach us to pray, we ask You, teach us to worship. Teach us to, as Hebrews says, be caught up into the heavenlies, to your very throne room, to all of those angels and those uh, saints who have gone before uh, and joining with them in the worship of your awesome being. You are holy. We want to be holy. You are merciful. We want to be merciful. We want to be more and more like you. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.